Hi everyone, it's Ayit Carlson talking. Welcome back to my podcast about the recent hydraulic fracturing gas boom here in West Virginia. This is the fourth and last episode where I explore the effects of this last decade's gas boom through the eyes of the residents of Doddridge County, a small county in West Virginia. In my first episode, I went into detail about what horizontal hydraulic fracturing, sometimes called fracking, is, its impact, history, and why it's controversial. It's clear that there are some environmental impacts. Well, for any source of potential contamination, everybody has to understand that we all live downstream. So anything that's emitted into the environment is a, is a threat to everybody. In my second episode, I spoke to Dartridge County residents who say the gas boom is destroying their lives and habitat. It was usually the air was so bad that we couldn't, we shouldn't even be outside. In my third and latest episode, I drove into West Union to speak to various residents with non-gas-related occupations to see how the industry is affecting their lives. I think a lot of the people that complain are the people that aren't reaping any kind of reward from it. Now it's time to give voice to the gas industry itself. So put on your seatbelts as I head on the road, first down south to West Union to speak to Cameron Spower, a Mark West energy inspector, and finally head up north, slightly across the state border, as I pay a visit to Richard Smith, a veteran director of sales for C&J Energy in Cannonsburg, Pennsylvania. Cameron Spar works for Mark West Energy, a gas company from Denver, Colorado. As a midstream operation, Mark West serves customers in the exploration and production field like Antero that drill the wells and own the resources. With operations in eight states in addition to West Virginia, Mark West transports and processes the raw natural gas product and liquids in the energy delivery chain between the well and the customer. The company has operated in West Virginia for over 25 years, but has been involved with the Marcellus Shale drilling in Doddridge County and West Virginia since 2007. In 2017, Mark West has seven separate processing plants for natural gas in Pennsylvania and West Virginia processing 1.6 billion cubic feet of gas per day. Their biggest project to date is here in Doddridge County, the Sherwood complex by the I-50 highway. It's hard to miss the $200 million processing complex on your left-hand side as you approach the turn into West Union, the county's capital. Cameron lives in a camper van with his wife and kids on the property of Christina Trent's auto detail shop, who I spoke with in my last episode. Yeah, we're outside this camper of yours, a really big one, and this is uh, your your place where you live with your family. Mm -hmm. This this is my home away from home. Okay. Yeah. So, so you you're living a lot of mobile life. Yeah, you have to have to be able to chase the chase the work. 
okay. always moving and you got to move with it so your family is completely fine with that and uh, oh, they love it yeah they love it they get to meet new people all the time meet kids and and stuff that uh stay around you know in the campers and stuff also so it's a it's a way of life for for them so that's a that's a story of many people that work in the oil and gas industry right that they, they travel around and, and yeah, live the the work's never in one place you know forever it's it's constantly moving and and everyone moves with it uh, where we come from there's there's no work i mean it's very small town and jobs are far and few between. Cameron is from a small town called Lincoln Town in North Carolina, six hours south from where we're standing. Today, he's an inspector for Mark West, mainly handling inspections on new constructions, such as the new processing plant being built across the road. My job is to make sure that the contractor upholds uh, what's best of interest for Mark West. Um, I inspect and make sure they do their job correctly and properly and that, uh, at the end of the day everybody goes home safely. He does that by ensuring pipelines meet Pacific building codes or state environmental standards in addition to testing for leaks, spills or pressure problems. What do you say were the most visible benefits of this recent gas boom for you personally? Um, well personally I, I want more for my kids than I ever did for myself when I was a kid, so, uh, you know, if, if it wasn't for the oil and gas business uh, and the boom, you know, it'd be a lot of people out of work around this. Uh, where I come from, it's either pipeline or, or oil rigs is, is the jobs, and uh, if it wasn't for that, there'd be a lot of unemployed people from where I'm from. So is it, um, in general, a pretty well-paid job? Yes, it's, uh, it, it's, really well paid I mean for uh, compared to other jobs that I've had first out of school and and that kind of thing it's uh, it's re really well paid it's became a young man's game I mean you know it's it's no college degree it's no uh, after high school I mean that's that's your level of education I mean it's it allows someone straight out of high school to make six figures a year you know, you have people with four four year degrees or eight years degree eight year degrees that still don't make that kind of money. So uh, that kind of it's a it's a money thing. That's for sure. Those employed by the natural gas industry earn more than the state median, with the average pumpers earning around thirty five dollars an hour, an average of fifty thousand and eight hundred and sixty a year in salary. In comparison, the median household income in West Virginia is 43385 which is the second worst of all the states. For workers like Cameron, with no college degree, it's an easy choice. Mark West Energy prides itself for employing locals with 174 workers throughout the state of West Virginia and 50 here in Dodgers at the Sherwood Complex. As I said in my last episode, the ratio of local versus out-of-state employees is hard to find due to the Bureau of Labor Statistics disclosure standards. But the main gas companies in the area that I contacted, EQT, Mark West and Antero Resources, 
all said that they were committed to hiring local workers and other companies' sustainability reports mirror that. From what I've seen and heard, this seems to be the truth, although many of the more specialized employees often come from outside the state. According to a 2016 report by the West Virginia Oil and Natural Gas Association, over 17,000 were employed inside West Virginia in the oil and gas industry-related jobs, so it's reasonable to believe a good portion of that are locals. For more information on employment, scale back to episode 3. Despite employment and tax revenue, the gas extractions in the county is a hotbed issue, and I was curious to see if Cameron had experienced any first-hand hostility of some of the opposing locals in his work. Oh yeah, I've, I've had uh, landowners pull guns on me, um, you know, as us as a group, um, you know, them just hold you up point blank with a gun until the law shows up. And, uh, I've had many exchanged verbal, you know, confrontations with landowners that um, don't agree with it. But then again, we're on the neighboring property, and and a lot of times, what it boils down to is they're upset because the pipeline didn't come through their property, but they're having to deal with the the backside effects of it, being the traffic and and the equipment and the noise, but then they're not getting no money or anything for compensation, so. Property disputes are rampant in West Virginia due to surface and mineral right disputes. I talk about that in detail in my last episode, but in a nutshell, gas companies can drill under your property without your permission if you only own the surface rights to your land. No wonder Cameron gets into unpleasant encounters. Cameron says that although some out-of-state workers simply look at this as an in-and-out job, the local West Virginians take pride in their work in the gas industry. You know, a lot of us grew up in this state and it's called wild and wonderful West Virginia for a reason and, you know, so a lot of us take pride in it that, that are from here and 20, 30 years down the road be able to show your kids, hey, I, I worked there, you know, done this hillside and that kind of thing where the others, you know, they'll be back in Texas or Oklahoma, wherever they're from, and this will just all be a a glitch from 20, 30 years ago, you know. Do you, do you remember any specific accidents or injuries that you or your coworkers have have had uh, in the in the past years? Yeah, um, before I started on the pipeline, I used to work on a drilling rig, and I actually uh, struck a guy in the head with a join a drill pipe when I was running the rig. And um, that was probably one of the biggest accidents. Um, How did that end? Um, he ended up being okay. It, he ended up getting 40-some staples and over 100 stitches. He was in the hospital for four months. It messed up his equilibrium in his ear and, and his balance and everything was, was off, but he ended up recovering. A good friend of mine he was trammed over with a excavator, um, lower part of his legs, crushed his legs, um, but he was able to fully recover and now he, that's what he does for a living is, is run excavators. But people do lose their life in this line of work. I mean, 
you can only be so safe and um, of course everybody at the end of the day wants to go home the way they came but um, that's part of the business. Leaving Cameron's trailer I head to a place where accidents are less likely to happen the office of C&J Energy in Cannonsburg, Pennsylvania, less than an hour away from the West Virginia border. I'm heading there to speak to Richard Smith, the director of sales in the Northeast. Hailing from Charleston, West Virginia, Richard handles, among other tasks, oil field and service completions in the Northeast region of the United States, including West Virginia. Richard has worked all across the globe for companies like Mobile One and Halliburton. I was curious to know how the industry conducted itself back in the day. He says safety protocols were pretty much non-existent when he was starting out. I mean, the way we used to do things uh, compared to today, the environmental safeguards, like, you know, putting down containment on locations, spending thousands and thousands of dollars for containment, I mean, right now, our, our safety and environmental rules are that if we spill a quart of fluid on location, that's considered a spill. And we have to stop work and do whatever we need to do to clean that up immediately. Spills are unacceptable. Where 30 years ago, we had no containment. I mean, they would just take a bulldozer, Take, cut the trees down, put the, stack the trees over to the edge of location, take a bulldozer, take off the topsoil, and that was location. You'd be out there in mud high, you know, knee-deep mud, and, you know, working, and if you spilled something on the ground, you know, okay, as long as it wasn't a major spill. And, uh, and then they would reclaim location and go about their way. Richard used to work in Brunei, East Malaysia and the Philippines for many years as a technical advisor for drilling sites. He says the difference regarding regulations and environmental considerations were vastly different between there and here in the States. Uh, for instance, Brunei, it was in, the country owns the oil and gas rights. Shell is a 50-50 partner, actually Shell owned 49% of it. The government of Brunei owned 51% of it, the Sultan of Brunei, who at that time was like the sixth richest man in the world. When you, you know, try to do things safely and environmentally and in a correct way, but if you did have a spill, there wasn't, you know, an inspector sitting there making sure that you cleaned it up, that the dirt or material was properly disposed of, where you do today. I mean, if you take a look at West Virginia, you know, on a location, usually you're going to be visited by the state inspector at least once, maybe twice a week. And he's going to be looking for violations. Overseas, in an international operation, the country owns the oil and gas rights. They don't go out and inspect themselves, right? Because it's the revenue that's keeping the country running. I can give you an example. <laughs> We had a gentleman who was a local Bruneian offshore one day, and uh, I got a call from my supervisor on, on, the, lo on the rig that uh, they had caught him asleep out beside the wellhead. And this was a well that had high pressure. Uh, they were doing some coil tubing operations on it. 
and they, he had just had 12 hours previously off and came back on tower at about 6 a.m. and at 9 a.m. they found him sound asleep on the deck of this, of this rig. So I told him, you know, told him to fly him in, get him off the rig, because the, the shell company man wanted him off the rig too. So he came in and, uh, you know, I explained to him that, you know, he had violated Halliburton safety policy and even Shell's safety policy that Shell was not going to allow him back on location ever again, that his, you know, the only thing that we could do was terminate him. Well, <laughs> so about two days later, I get a call from the Labor Department of the country that we were working in, Brunei. And then keep in mind, this was a local Bruneian that we had hired. And uh, so I said, okay, you know, they want me to come down and talk about why we dismissed this gentleman. So my secretary, who spoke the local Bruneian, and, uh, and I went down to the Labor Department, and uh, the first thing the Labor Department guy comes in, and he says, oh, welcome, you know, Mr. Smith, glad you could come down and meet with us. Uh, we want to talk to you about Mr. Ridgewan, you know, why you terminated him. And I said, well, you know, the reason was he was found sound asleep, you know, you know, after he just had 12 hours off and it was this major safety violation, right? And uh, so I said, you know, he's not allowed back on Shell's locations because he's a danger to himself and he could also put the employees around him that he's working with in danger. And <laughs> And this government official looked at me and says, well, you know, I can deport you and your family within 24 hours. And it didn't even dawn on me what he was, was trying to tell me. And I said, yeah, I, I realize that. So I said, look, you know, I even have a letter here from the managing director from Shell that this gentleman's not allowed on a Shell location. And then he says, I don't care about the letter. Do you realize I can deport you within 24 hours? So then the light came on and I thought, huh, this guy wants me to hire this guy back because he's a local Brunei, it's their country, and, you know, there's not a whole lot, you know, I'm the expat, right? And I said, well, I'll tell you what, I said, you know, we can hire this gentleman back and I can put him to work in our yard, doing something in our yard on equipment, working on equipment or something, and, uh, but he's not, you know, since he's not allowed on a show location, and the guy goes, Oh, I'm glad we could come to a resolution on this matter. You know, I knew we could work something out. Thank you very much. And as we were leaving, him and my secretary were talking in Brunei, which I couldn't understand. They were probably calling me everything but a white man, but, you know, it was their country, right? So, I mean, and the same thing for, you know, environmental. You know, when we had environmental things that happened, spills, things like that. We tried to clean them up, but like I said, you never had, you know, a Brunei and government official sitting there saying, okay, now you got to take this dirt and take it to an EPA-approved landfill, you know, and make sure it's disposed properly and blah, 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 you know. We didn't have that. There are certainly more stringent regulations for hydraulic fracturing in the United States. For West Virginia, the Department of Environmental Protection handles inspections of gas wells and their completion, among other things. Jason Harmon, the Deputy Chief of the Oil and Gas Office that I spoke to in my previous episodes, 
says the state is outstandingly rigorous in regulating the gas drilling in the state. I believe that the regulations that we have in place are second to none uh, when compared to other states around. I think that we have a very good handle on drilling um, and on operations that enable us to, to do a very good job in our protections. At the end of the year 2017, the DEP performed 4,166 total inspections statewide. 700 of those covered the so-called fracking wells in question. 96 compliance actions were taken that same year in the form of orders, violations and so forth. It's hard to get a well-specific inspection count prior to mid-2016 as the department just launched a new database which changes the way inspection data is stored, but overall the DEP does stay busy. Since 2011, over 12,000 inspections have been performed in the state, 1,190 of those resulting in some form of compliance action issued. It must be noted though that the department's main concern, water contamination, has only been documented once. A result of a gas well explosion here in Dotridge County that I talked about in episode 2. Now you might be thinking, are the fines enough of a deterrent or do the gas companies rather feel it's cheaper to operate unsafely and eat up the fines? Mr. Harmer believes that if the operator had that mindset, the DEP would see much larger numbers of fines through the years and says the department will simply not let them get away with repeated infractions. Looking through the chart, it's easy to understand why. In 2013, for example, the highest single fine for an infraction was $275,000. An infraction in 2015 cost the company $203,000. The fines ranged from $400 to $275,000 and although there were $790,000 worth of fines given out in 2013, there were only 6 monetary fines issued in 2017, totaling up to a modest $88,000. There might be more stringent regulations for hydraulic fracturing in the United States, but some say that the gas companies have gotten away with causing environmental damages as a result of their work. But not particularly by breaking the laws, but amending them to their needs. One of the most controversial examples of that was the Halliburton loophole named after the oil field services company that Richard used to work for for 26 years. The Energy Policy Act of 2005 exempted hydraulic fracturing from the so-called Safe Drinking Water Act. It exempted companies from disclosing the chemicals used in the hydraulic fracturing process. It is interesting to note that Dick Cheney then the vice president of the country was instrumental in passing the exemption. He had previously been the CEO of Halliburton from 1995 to the year 2000. As I start asking Richard about this, I see him cracking a smile and laughing wholeheartedly. Uh, since former CEO Dick Cheney was reportedly instrumental in his passage. Can you explain this a little bit to me? Well. 
<laughs> There's a lot of controversy over that. Matter of fact, uh, Mr. Cheney and I had dinner one night in, in Bruna. He came, actually was in Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia. He came into the Southeast Asia region and all the country managers had to go up and do a little presentation for Mr. Cheney. And he's a very interesting man. I only met him one time. Uh, of course, he was only at Halliburton a very short time before he resigned and became vice president under George Bush. The loophole that you're talking about was, was you know, the Clean Water Act, basically anything that you did that you injected in the ground, you were supposed to report it. And of course, as they say, you know, Mr. Cheney or, or Halliburton got that taken out of the Clean Water Bill if you were a hydraulic fracturing company. And, you know, now today, you know, we have what they call frac focus, which basically does the same thing. It's kind of took over that. Frac Focus is a website which functions as an online voluntary disclosure database for hydraulic fracturing fluids and supposedly does the job of revealing the chemicals used in the practice. He adds that there are some proprietary chemicals that aren't disclosed for business reasons. And I think most of, most of the companies you know, report exactly what we pump. But basically, there are some proprietary chemicals and, you know, companies on the service side that do the hydraulic fracturing spend a lot of money, a lot of time and research on developing those chemicals. Um, so just to go out here and put it down on a report that anybody, you know, Tom, Harry, or whoever can get it, it's, it's, it's not fair to those companies either. In comparison, it can be added that the regulatory regime for hydraulic fracturing operations within the European Union requires full disclosure of all additives. So, what's the problem? According to Richard, the biggest one is miscommunication, and he faults the gas industry for it. One of the poorest things that this industry has done, the oil and gas industry, is we have not educated the public, I don't think, my personal opinion, on really about our industry. I mean, for years, we were just laying low, and we never really showed people what the oil and gas industry was all about. Even though that, you know, people don't understand where electricity comes from, for example. They think that you just take a, a plug, plug it in the wall, electric comes out of it, right? They don't understand that there's a power generation plant somewhere 40 miles from here that's either burning coal or natural gas or oil to turn, you know, to fire the boilers to make steam, to turn the, ger you know, the generators to produce the electric. The same thing for like petro, the oil for petrochemical industry, you know, plastics, things like that, medicine, you know. People don't understand that, you know, you have to have that as a base to make products that they use in everyday life. You know, one of the funny things was back in 2011, the Marcellus Shell Coalition had a meeting over in Philadelphia. And of course, all the protesters were there. I mean, busloads. There must have been probably 15 to 2,000 people outside the convention center protesting the oil and natural gas industry. But at the end of the sidewalks, they had propane bottles with a big kettle, and they were boiling corn for their lunch. 
but they were using propane <laughs> bottles to heat the water, right? So where do they think the propane came from? It came from the oil and gas industry, right? So it's kind of funny that they were they're protesting us, but yet they were using what we what we do. Richard feels that the mainstream media has shown hydraulic fracturing in an unfair light. I forget that producer that made the the Gasland movie, and he showed water coming out of a faucet, you know, and they lit the faucet and the Gasland was a 2011 Academy Award nominated documentary about hydraulic fracturing. A famous scene shows a Colorado resident lighting up his tap water due to a supposedly high level of methane in his drinking water. Well, when you go back and look over the last 40 years, there's a bunch of shallow cold seams up in that part of the country. And people have had gas in their water for years and years and years before we even went up there. So there's a lot of misconceptions about that and about our industry on how we construct the wells. People don't understand that, you know, we set multiple strings of casing to protect the surface water and protect everything, you know, from zero to 5,000, 6,000 feet deep, which is over a mile down. So, you know, how are we gonna ruin somebody's water well at 100 feet? We're not. For the past four episodes, I've tried to explain this complex and volatile debate about horizontal hydraulic fracturing by explaining the process and its effect with the help of specialists and then looking at the issue through the eyes of different stakeholders inside a county that's seen a drastic change in their livelihood due to the past decade's gas extractions. The Marcellus Shale gas boom has had significant effect on the county's economy by employing residents and stimulating local businesses. The small county also received tens of millions of dollars in severance and property tax for the past several years, and the gas extractions has certainly brought incredible wealth to a number of fortunate landowners. But there is a flip side. As you can hear from the people I spoke with in my second episode, there's hundreds of Dartrance County residents who feel their beautiful countryside has been transformed into an industrial wasteland. Many of them are considering moving out of the state, some simply can't afford it. Mass litigation lawsuits against gas companies and peer-reviewed articles about possible pollution as a result of the gas extractions makes a strong case against the industrial activity in the area. In my third episode, I waited the middle. The gas industry helps the school system while rows of trucks fly by near its entrance. The tax revenue funds the sheriff's department, while on the other hand, the number of crimes and citations rise concurrently. But as Richard Smith said earlier, energy has to come from somewhere. Some might say West Virginia is the sacrificial state having to deal with coal's detrimental health effects throughout its history. Some say horizontal drilling has a better trade-off. Some say it's unacceptable to compromise on residents' health. I'll let you make your own opinion on the matter. All I know is that everyone I've spoken to are kind, smart, and deserve to live in an environment where they thrive, both economically and health-wise. One last thing, 
If you're interested in exploring this topic visually and get in-depth detail on the issue of hydraulic fracturing, go to my website gascounty.com where you can find research, photos, videos, and an interactive timeline. Thanks for listening. Music is from freemusicarchive.org and bandsound.com.